Maybe the court is too supreme. America's founders never intended it to be that distant from the democratic process. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. I'm hardly a military strategist, but one thing I have learned, if what you're doing again and again fails to bring victory, if the front you are taking on is just not yielding, you stop and attack from a different angle. The way political agendas go from wish to reality is, in a democratic republic, through organizing voters, reaching out to them, winning their hearts and minds so they will carry the sword that you prefer. Since the process of changing policy democratically doesn't always work, especially for the right wing, a clever move is to circumvent the whole process. The far right discovered and is having great success implementing a way to avoid the will of the people. Elections are too public. They're so inconvenient. The American court system turned out to be a much less visible yet highly effective tool in gaining power over three arenas. The other arenas are, of course, legislative and executive. But in short, if you can't get your agenda into gear by the democratic way, just sneak around it. Because, let's face it, people pay virtually no attention to our vast, nearly invisible court system, but it's, it's a huge layer of government. Instead of serving us, our guest today argues that, in her words, the courts, now packed with corporate-approved right-wingers, are, quote, abetting growing extremes of inequality. And I would add, thus hurting democracy. The courts are doing to us what the autocratic wannabes can't do through the ballot. As I said, democracy is just so inconvenient. In an article in the Washington Monthly called The Two Supreme Court, our guest Caroline Fredrickson asks if liberals have unintentionally have become a big part of the problem, too easily abdicating legitimate legislative power to a somewhat self-blinded, misplaced faith in this unelected branch. Not just our obvious rights, but the power of corporations over the public sphere has harmed our democracy way too much already. Are Democrats doing anything about this? Are we even paying attention to this nearly invisible, unanswerable power over our lives? Caroline Fredrickson, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Caroline Fredrickson is Distinguished Visiting Professor of Practice at Georgetown Law, nice part of the world, and a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, terrific organization. She served as president of the American Constitution Society from 2009 to 2019. And in 2021, she was appointed a member of the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, first off, that title... Can you explain that? Why is it called the two Supreme Court? What does that mean? <laughs> well, um, the, the idea is, I you know, have to admit, I didn't choose the title. It often happens when you're a writer that um, that the editors yes. choose it. But it, it's yes. a great title, nonetheless, because it conveys the point, which is too powerful Supreme Court, too supreme in uh, in our society. Um, the the power that was accorded to the court under the Constitution um 
has gotten out of control. Um, and they're really, I think, um, very. It's very difficult to um, to to get it back, uh, to get it under control under the system that we have. Yeah, it sure is. It really is. Lord knows, a lot of us have been trying about many different angles. The Constitution Society. I, frankly, not familiar with that, but as you might gather, I really like the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And while the term originalist is intentionally self-promoting for Supreme Court justices who think pretty highly of themselves, insisting they have it right and any other interpretation is wrong, one must try to discern the intent of the writers of the Constitution when it comes to the power and the limits of the judicial branch. As someone who's more familiar with the Constitution than most of us, tell us, please, what you see as the intended role of the courts in governance of a democratic republic. Well, first, um, I I would like to take credit entirely for my piece in the Washington Monthly, but I must say that it was a book review right. um, of a marvelous book called The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution um, by uh, professors Joseph Fishkin and William Forbath. Mm-hmm. Um, and why I I feel like I must mention it is that is that one of the really important aspects of the book is that it is deeply researched and historical. Um, unlike what often passes for originalism no. um, uh, at the Supreme Court level and in 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 academia, um, you know most lawyers and law professors aren't also historians. Well, these two actually are. Um, they're not originalists um, because mm. they would uh, not claim to be able to discern exactly what every phrase in the Constitution meant at the time, um, uh, especially when you're talking about broad um, uh, 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 phrases. But but what they did really examine and why the book is such a, a great, it's also a great read, very, very engaging, um, not meant for, um, you know, the people who are deep in the weeds. It's actually quite approachable. Ah. Um, but what, what they really are showing is that the meaning of the Constitution has been contested throughout out our history. And the idea that um, what we have now is called uh, judicial supremacy, meaning the Supreme Court has the last and final word on interpretation of the Constitution, mm. uh, and that its views are that the the Constitution is uh, inherently libertarian, anti-redistributive, um, and they actually uh, Fishkin and Forbath show um, how right um, from the very beginnings that even the state constitutions that preceded our federal Constitution had very strong um, redistributive. Um, efforts that this there was there was a a, a very strong belief uh, that that the kind of aristocratic monarchical um, societies that they were escaping from and that they were you know breaking from during the revolution was something that they must repudiate and that the reason that that to protect a democracy especially a fledgling a fledgling democracy you have to ensure that there's a broad participation. Now, granted, their ver- version of broad is not what we think of as broad, but a uh, non-oligarchic, non-wealth-based uh, 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 or inherited um, mode of power. And therefore, mm-hmm. um, there was this idea. Um, Jefferson was a big proponent and other anti-federalists um, who, you know, uh, the idea that there there needed to be a constant kind of redistributive process in American society to ensure that those kinds of, you know, aggregations of wealth, privilege and power were broken up. And then what's really fundamental about the book is the recognition that political power 
um, is deeply engaged with economic power. Now, it seems kind of obvious, but to understand that democracy is fundamentally dependent on ensuring that there is a at least um, some process of redistribution and, and sharing of, of the wealth, because otherwise uh, we turn into an oligarchy and we ensure that the, the richest and most powerful um, will run our country, uh, regardless of whether we call it a democracy or not. And, and certainly, you know, the War of Independence, <laughs> the colonists, the eventual patriots, most specifically an energetically rejected government by oligarchy. A uh, couple of questions. How, how in recent years, with the Supreme Court as it is, how has it changed this government by oligarchy? And it seems to me that a lot of people on the right would say, no, the government is not there for, for to do a redistributive process, that it's there to protect uh, the people who have made this money and they, you know, deserve this money. You know, you know the arguments that they put out there that mm -hmm. uh, that that's what freedom is. Mm -hmm. Well, so the, you know the, the argument that the authors make, and I think is very compelling, is that the Constitution not only allows Congress to engage in redistribution, it actually requires it. Um, that there are many provisions of the Constitution that um, either have been um, interpreted. Uh, quite differently in more recent years or have been ignored altogether. Um, there's something called the guarantee clause that says each state shall be guaranteed uh, a Republican form of government. Um, and looking into what a Republican form of government meant at the time, it was exactly what we were talking about before, which is this idea of, uh, of a broad participation, not based on wealth. And the, the way to assure that there is broad participation is to make, um, make it, uh, absolutely possible for um, uh, for the broad citizenry to uh, prevent the aggregation of power through the aggregation of wealth, um, and uh, and so therefore that they you know could engage in um, the kinds of, of of legislative exercises that they must to protect democracy that would ensure that there was um, this kind of redistributive process. Um, so the guarantee clause. The, the protection of the general welfare in the Constitution that mm -hmm. is uh, one of uh, the, 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 the uh, objectives of our Constitution. Um, but also it, it's, it was a really it was a fight right from the beginning. You have yes. the whole fight over the, the, um, the National Bank um, yes. uh, between you have Hamilton versus Jefferson. Um, and then, you know, Jackson later on um, and, you know, the whether or not the federal government could, should, must engage in kind of uh, uh, the, the, the process of building um, infrastructure meant something different to the Jacksonians who were deeply suspicious of federal power because they um, wanted to protect small white um, male landowners, mm -hmm. um, small um, businesses. But it became, and it came to mean something else for um, uh, under Van Buren, who saw uh, the sort of development of infrastructures being actually uh, important and moving out to the West to, to allow the development of those lands so that there could be um, uh, uh, people without wealth could acquire property. And then an understanding, then Reconstruction, um, where there um, became um, a, a much, there was a very strong interest among some of the radical Republicans in, in, in using 
government powers to ensure that there was no uh, landed aristocracy in the South anymore and redistributing the land of uh, from plantation owners to um, uh, black citizens. Uh, and so, you know, this tension went through our history and it was, again, it was not just about um, whether Congress could possibly do um, uh, engage in redistribution, but actually whether it must and whether it was a command in the mm. constitution and, um, and the courts were not the, at that point or understanding kind of the, 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 the ones who had the final say. Um, huh. And so this was just, uh, you know, it's something that I think they, 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 they make very clear in this history. And it, it is really incredibly interesting to see how they pull this strand together, um, you know, through then the, the, the post reconstruction era and the kind of turn um, to, a, a, you know, from the, from the Northern industrialists who then saw uh, a real a need to move back to libertarian principles to protect against the newly um, organizing workers um, who were, um, you know, trying to claim some share of their um, of of that wealth um, that was being, you know, produced by the 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 big industry that was coming uh, into into place in the United States, um, and then the you know then you know into the New Deal and so forth. And anyways, yes. just it's it's um, I think it really it is allows I think a really close examination of history. Um, and forces the people who, uh, especially on the left, who've been very complacent yes. about the role of the courts and sort of, you know, well, this is just the way it has been and should be and must be. And we have to respect the courts. And, um, you know, the court says X, therefore it is. Um, and I think they really show that that is not the way it 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 should be, um, the way it has been. Um, and we need to really demand more. Yes, we have. We liberals, Democrats, have have played a part. And uh, as you point out, the book, uh, uh, the anti oligarchy constitution by Fishkin and Forbath, does argue that there have been unintended side effects of by liberals yielding such unquestioned legitimacy to court decisions. And uh, I think that probably goes back to uh, uh, the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education when. You know, there was such relief that this blatant uh, segregation that the court said, no, you can't do that. But then we just sort of handed it over. Ah, we trust the court. And, you know, it's largely about, uh, well, experts, the, the idea of experts, the notion of government by experts uh, has been around for a while, I mean, FDR had his so-called brain trust, which did some pretty great stuff. We didn't have solutions uh, mm -hmm. back in the uh, in that Great Depression. Eighty years later, maybe it's revealed that what some call the administrative state, with its layers of bureaucracy and power uh, of the courts, has perhaps had a deleterious effect on our founders' intent, which was a functioning democracy. What about that? You know government by experts. I mean, I know when I need a doctor as being the age I am, unfortunately, it's too often. Uh, you know, I, I rely on a doctor. When my roof is leaking, I rely on experts more qualified than I am. Federal judges, they're supposed to know the Constitution and the law. Are they not better qualified by us, <laughs> by definition, under Article 3 of the Constitution? Or 
You ask, is constitutional law not a narrow technical field properly controlled by elite legal experts? What about that expert power? Well, I think you just put your finger on the difference. Um, You know, constitutional interpretation is politics. Political economy uh, is an area of contestation. It's not an area of of pure expertise. Um, I certainly wouldn't want, you know, my, my, my dear friends operating on me if they're not doctors. Um, but I think we can have an argument about the meaning of the Constitution and don't have to be judges. Uh, we can be informed and engaged. And, 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 and this is the point of the book, that there are constitutional actors who are in all parts of our society. The Constitution is interpreted and applied by all sorts of, of individuals uh, who are acting in some way um, to advance an agenda. Um, and there are uh, the interpretation and understanding of, of what our sort of supreme law is, um, is something that has been constantly shaped by a broad swath of society. Uh, and the idea that we step back now and say, we don't have a role here, mm. that it's not our place to question the Supreme Court in its understanding. Um, the Supreme Court is a particularly conservative one right now and it's just to state the obvious to put it mildly, yeah. and has arrogated to itself the vast uh sort of the, this incredible power to have the final say over uh, every constitutional matter that is the lack of deference that is paid to the other branches of government in questions that would have in the prior in prior courts been left to the political process is really just astounding. And so, you know, this is, this is, I think, important for people to understand that the courts kind of, you can just have to picture it's like the, it's seeping, you know, it's like a liquid seeping under the door, um, <laughs> gradually soaking up more and more of, of the, the major questions that are addressing American society. You know, can Congress actually legitimately pass legislation to protect health care, to, you know, to to ensure that more people have access to health insurance? Can Congress um, provide some um, uh, uh, protections against a pandemic? Can federal agencies acting pursuant to to federal statutes uh, implement um, uh, rules that uh, advance those goals? Well, um, one would think in a democratic society that um, even if the court might say, you know, we're not 100 percent sure we agree with that, right. um, certainly as a policy matter and even as a constitutional matter, if it's a question that's debatable, isn't that something that the political branches should decide? You know, when there are cut and dried constitutional decisions and, the you know, the Congress has clearly gone um, too far. Uh, or the executive branch, um, and there's really no room for that kind of disagreement. But when there's really a gray area, um, and then, but even more so, when nobody thought there was a gray area in the past, it was clearly something Congress could do. All of a sudden, this court is saying, "No, it can't." Right. That that does uh, amaze me. The court has many, many opportunities to say, "Yeah, we're not going to take it. We'll leave it up to the political process." They 
used to do that, I guess, more than they do now. But now they're sort of hoarding the decision making. And it seems, as you say, to be, you know, creeping under the doors to uh, invade areas that maybe wasn't wasn't intentional. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking with uh, Caroline Fredrickson, who's written in Washington Monthly, The Two Supreme Court, and it's a review of a book called The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution by Joseph Fishkin and William Forbath. And one of the many phrases that the right likes to uh, to grab onto is activist judges. Now, it seems to me, I may be wrong, but it seems to me that if you're a justice Supreme Court or, or, or other judges and you take... Huh, to uh, the court, which is perhaps debatably uh, belongs to the court, uh, and not uh, leaving it to the uh, to the democratic process, boy, that sure seems like activist judges to me. And when they, you know, specifically are absolutely dedicated to protecting the oligarchy, is that not activism? Well, you know, it's this is what's crazy about the right is they're so good at coming up with slogans yes. and it doesn't really ma- matter if they bear any relationship to reality. Um, it, let's let's you know, to 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 put it very clearly, I think um, right now we have a court that has many members uh, in the conservative majority who are dedicated to the idea of overturning precedent. Yes, um, they believe that their understanding of the Constitution uh, is more truthful and more loyal um, and must trump any idea of continuity in the law or or uh, deference to precedent, um, which is, you know, in a common law tradition, generally this is how the law works to give people a, an ability to rely on it, um, uh, to give some kind of, um, uh, you know, the, the people don't feel like the laws are being overturned all the time in a kind of arbitrary manner. Well, you listen to Clarence Thomas and he would say, no, it's really much more important that we are faithful to originalism uh, than we are faithful to the idea of precedent and stare decisis. And by the way, my understanding of the Constitution is just that much better than yours yeah. uh, and anybody who came before me. And therefore, Roe versus Wade should be overturned right now, um, as well as a lot of other precedents that um, uh, that he doesn't think are grounded in the Constitution. Yeah, it's a. Uh... Quite an interpretation of the Constitution, and if if I hear you right, and I I you know I try to keep up with uh, things and read a fair amount of history, but the Constitution it is intended in there that Congress uh, does have a responsibility, and in fact is required to uh, bring about uh, egalitarian principles, uh, and that uh, that the courts. Well, let me ask you this. Can the courts be made to serve egalitarian ends? Or do they have to turn it over to Congress? I mean, Congress is supposed to do that, right? What about that division of labor there? Well, you know, I think it's time for Congress to shake off this idea that the court is always right. Um, And it's definitely true that there are, if Congress tries to um, reenact statutes that the court finds unconstitutional, um, uh, the court may well strike them down again, um, but there needs to be a national conversation about where the court is. You know, I respect President Biden for setting up his commission and having us have the, you know, somewhat of a conversation. But, you know, let's, you know, in the 
during a pandemic and economic slowdown and a and war in Ukraine, um, it's pretty hard to get people to focus on the fact that our Supreme Court has usurped um, the main powers of the government and is now acting as sort of <laughs> the supreme, the two Supreme yeah. Court. Um, it, 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 so it's hard to have that conversation. But um, Forbath and um, and Fishkin yeah. um, t- provide a, quite a, a number of, of ideas about how we as citizens need to basically fight back. And one of them is to continue to push for what we think are the right policies, the right kind of redistributional policies. And, um, you know, and I think those are ideas that are quite popular right now. Um, a wealth tax, um, yes. uh, ensuring that there are, um, uh, you know, so there's a, there's a fair amount of, of what Congress could do that even this court hasn't at least yet found unconstitutional. Um, so move forward in that direction and really address the questions of, of economic opportunity. Um, engage with the court um, directly um, mm. through um, passing legislation that might um, challenge uh, its views. Um, also challenge the court um, uh, in terms of its structure. And this is something we examined on the commission. Maybe it is time to expand the court. Um, I certainly believe it's time to add term limits to these justices' um, uh, service. Um, uh, you know, we need to rebuild um, labor unions and other um, social society, uh, civil society organizations um, to provide counterbalance. Um, uh, and, you know, so they make this argument in terms of, you know, in part that, uh, you know, the ways to support a broad-based egalitarian um, social movement um, that helps um, support um, the the efforts to rein in the court. And if, you know, if we, once, a, once there is a broader um, uh, sort of political a, a political moment where the justices themselves can be um let's say uh changed <laughs> um you focus really closely on who those people are um and we cannot be passive uh, the right really put a lot of effort into building a court and building a bench um and the left was never really that engaged, um, which is ironic because, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the left has got really complacent. Maybe this is why the left got really complacent about the courts after Brown v. Board and thought, well, we can kind of step back. Um, the um, the court's going to protect us. We don't have to worry about making the constitutional arguments for um, our economic agenda. We'll cede the, that to the right, which never stopped trying to. Mm argue that the new deal was unconstitutional oh, yeah. um Go and ahead. they're winning now they are winning now that is the argument that is ascendant in this court the new deal and the the legislation that was passed to um to ensure a broader um economic prosperity among the american public is being challenged piece by piece bit by bit going down Yes, it is. And they have been at it, as you know, ever since the New Deal happened. It's give them, given them their definition for all these years. And they fought it uh, and you know, are trying to uh, make us believe that there's something other than uh, you know, the, the good of the people, the common good, that uh, you know, it's just supposed to be, as you say, uh, kind of libertarian and just leave it, leave it to the big corporations, leave it to the experts. Uh-huh. Well, you mentioned, you know, undoing the the New Deal. And there were battles, as I'm sure you know, between the president and the high court. And in 19—President Roosevelt, and in 1937, the court stepped back 
and acknowledged the limited power, uh, the legitimate power of Congress to address economic issues. The court, of course, is now packed with corporate-friendly right-wingers. Uh, they, they, they don't uh, have any inclination to surrender to Congress, that which is Congress's. Uh, but it, and at the moment, the court is six to three right-wingers dominate. I can't even call them conservative. They're just far right. Mm-hmm. What are the options for Democrats now? Realistically, there's the thought of mm-hmm. adding more justices. What, what options do we have? What processes have we been missing that we're not picking up? What tools? Well, you know, <laughs> politics is everything. So, um, you know, <laughs> I say that because, uh, you know, this is really what it comes down to. When you want to have an impact on the court system, you have to do it through political engagement. And so that's that's part of it. But, you know, as I said, the the there needs to be broader thinking about how this happens. And one of the ways um, is pushing back on economic liberalism. And I don't mean it in the liberalist liberal wave liberal versus conservative but you know the adam smith um um sort of contorted view of adam smith economics that has dominated on the right and antitrust policy is a really important aspect of that and and you know this may sound like i'm taking us on a tangent but um one of the places where this court um this court and and, an right-wing economist has really um uh, destroyed the ability to have a, a a more uh, egalitarian society is by ripping the heart out of the Sherman Act, which is the uh, the antitrust act that was passed in the um, late 19th century. And let's remember antitrust. I think we forget what that means. Yes. Antitrust. We sort of read it antitrust and we forget that it's antitrust. And trusts were these big conglomerations, um, the, the, the massive corporate power that was assembled through um, those oligarchs who owned the oil companies and, uh, you know, Standard Oil and, right. uh, and, and steel and, and um, manufacturing cars, you know, the Ford, you know, Henry Ford. And, um, and they were so powerful. Um, and there, but there was a, you know, a, a, a social movement that arose to try and control it. And very much in the process of, of moving forward on antitrust law, they talked about this very idea of um, how the allowing these trusts to take over um, so much of the kind of the, the the direction of our economy had not just ceded to them the economy, but also the, the political system. So, and they were the reason why we had these these this the court system of the late nineteenth century into the clash um, that you mentioned with President Roosevelt. Those were the chosen people who implemented a libertarian, anti-regulatory, pro-trust um, kind of interpretation of the Constitution. And, you know, of course, Plessy versus Ferguson, et cetera, et cetera. But they're the ones who, you know, struck down minimum wage and oh, uh, 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 child labor laws and, and, and you name it. Um, so, you know, we have to think about this in a broader way. And I think that's part of our, our myopia is that we... I analyze these questions only in the sense of, you know, this, you know, perhaps we're engaging a little bit more on judicial nominations now. We pay attention, maybe a little bit more. Um, that's important, but it's not just that, right? We have to contest this whole idea of the law um, being a straitjacket that enforces a viewpoint of our political economy 
um, that is in conformity with uh, right-wing libertarian views um, because they understand their viewpoint. They clothe it in legal terms, but it's an economic one um, as well. It gives them political and economic control. Absolutely. And for those who may have just tuned in, I hope you're enjoying it. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Caroline Fredrickson, Distinguished Visiting Professor of Practice at Georgetown Law and a Senior Fellow at Brennan Center for Justice. Check them out. Good people there. And we're talking about uh, uh, discussion of the anti-oligarchy Constitution. And Bill Barr... Donald Trump, somebody who you're familiar with, who was on this show a couple times, uh, Catherine Stewart, who wrote The Power Worshippers, uh, and, and you wrote with her in the New York Times, uh, an op-ed, uh, talks about how successful they have been and how you know they realize that eh, the democratic process is just too tough. Let's just go through the courts where you know even Democrats are just not paying attention. And so... How have Bill Barr, Donald Trump, uh, and the anti-democratic right manipulated our judicial system? And how is America being affected by that non-democratic change that's happened? Well, at the risk of self-promotion, I will mention that I wrote a book called The The Democracy Fix, um, where I analyze this real question about how the right um, has uh, assembled its strategy um, of uh, uh, taking control of the legal system in service of, uh, of their oligarchic um, and right-wing religious agenda. Um, and, you know, it, it, one of the uh, uh, parts of history that I think is really worth uh, examining um, for your listeners is um, Justice Powell, who's often thought of now as almost a moderate. Um, when he was appointed to the court, he came from being a, uh, a tobacco lawyer um, and also serving at the Chamber of Commerce on, I think, their education committee. Um, and in the 19, early 1970s, he was so shaken by the kind of social movements that were coming into being. Um, and, and, and for him, particularly, it was kind of consumer rights uh, and worker rights. Um, but of course, there was also the women's movement, civil rights movement. Um, and uh, and he saw the courts being used by advocates as a way to actually undo some of the what we would consider the worst parts of American society and, and uh, um, advancing legislation on Capitol Hill um, for uh, clean air, clean water, um, um, more protections for um, uh, minority rights. And um, so he wrote this memo called the Powell Memo, uh, yes. um, where he laid out a um, a, a, a prescription for what the right must do, which involved, um, and this is what's brilliant and where the left really has, you know, fallen down, which is uh, he lays out, you know, a kind of a plan, which identifies the fact that, you know, you need to have a horizon that is not tomorrow. Um, It has to be, you have to have a long-term plan. You have to think about how you build infrastructure um, that actually provides training, um, that provides uh, a, a sort of a, a mentoring, um, a networking, um, support for um, research and um, and indoctrination of young people. So they had, you know, this uh, this idea of building um, foundations, uh, think tanks, litigation groups, um, groups for students, um, and ensuring that they had personnel 
on the receiving end who were primed to hear these arguments. So that would be a judiciary that um, was going to be open to the ideas that were being advanced. Now, let me just mention, originalism is an idea, um, an approach to constitutional interpretation that really was developed, guess what, just around this time. Um, And it became um, much more Mm. dominant during the administration of Ronald Reagan when Ed Meese was the attorney general, um, and he used the um, Department of Justice to basically put together the legal agenda um, to foster the young leaders of the Federalist Society, which was one of the institutions that was envisioned by um, Justice Powell's memo, the kind of networking, you know, mentorship, development of new of of new leaders and students and indoctrination of law students, um, as well as the support for um, a, a future judicial nominees. Um, and so, you know, there was there were many other parts of this, right? There was a Heritage Foundation, um, not to mention ALEC, the, yeah. administ- the American Legislative Exchange Council to develop right. legislative ideas for state legislatures. Very that would, effective group, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this was, but you just, people have to look at it and see how visionary he was. And then, but what's amazing is I could, I, you know, I wrote my book. I thought it was pretty good answer, but um, on the, on the right, he got, they got funding, they put together a plan and they did it right. The major corporations kicked in bucks because, you know, it went around the chamber of commerce and, um, they funded it. They funded that. Um, the Koch brothers, you know, funded parts of it, and the Mercers and the, the Bradleys and all of those, um, you know, in, uh, um, infamous <laughs> oligarchs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it's been pretty well documented. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has done a great job of sort of tracking the dark money and how it, you know, sort of this is the Powell memo lives on. Um, but we've never done the same on the left. No. It's harder because it we are much more diverse yes. and um uh and um and that's a great thing about the left but how do we harness our successes you know the fact that we do represent a much broader swath of society that we yep. are uh, open and more egalitarian and we are the future um what do we do with that and that's yes. you know part of what has to be part of our solution is understanding you know what are the mechanisms to to you know they're going to try and block us out now through voter suppression and gerrymandering and you know, and, and money in politics, you know, flooding, flooding the, 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 the airwaves with right wing advertisement, all the dark money support um, of different candidates. Um, but, you know, we have to think about in the long term, how do we how do we use our advantages? Well, I, I am reminded and uh, of when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, I became familiar with Alec, I assure you. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> the, 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 I was uh, working, supporting a bill to have sensible gun laws. And the, all the polling showed that like 80% of the people support sensible gun laws. Well, guess who came out to the hearing? Every single gun person of gun owners in New Hampshire, the NRA, and that cowed the legislature. And that's, I think, because that's their focus. Guns are their focus for this particular group. And the same with the with the bar uh, and the uh, religious nationalists. They have a clear focus. And frankly, we have less so, even though more 
vastly more people agree with us. Every poll indicates that. But I just read a very interesting book and spoke with um, author Michael Kazin, What It Took to Win. And one of the things it takes to win is movements. And they, you know, politicians, you know, FDR famously told uh, A. Philip Randolph about uh, segregation, how to end the, the segregation on the railroad cars. And FDR said something like, I'm with you. I support you. Now go out and make me do exactly. it. Exactly. That's and, exactly right. And we're not. It's like. Uh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying it encapsulate, encapsulates exactly. Even if you have a friendly administration, <laughs> even if you have a friendly administration, you have to organize. That's, it doesn't happen because people are just nice <laughs> and they support your general approach. It has to be politically viable and not even more so. I mean, sometimes politically viable is enough. Usually politically compelling, though, is compelling. what's required. Absolutely. And it's as a recovering politician myself, they have mm-hmm. to see that if I take a stand on this, will it help me or hurt me? So they, exactly. need, they need to see the support there is make it safe for the, the politicians. And, uh, you know, talk about the, the economy, where we are now. And as a reader of history, I, you know, I, I, I have found that one of the most striking attributes of where we are in 21st century America is the astounding economic inequities that I think surpass the infamous Gilded Era of the 1890s. When I grew up, there was a broad and solid middle class, at least among white people, I will say. But what about the court's ability to foster or detract affecting market activity relative to the protection of a broad property middle class. Can they not do that? I mean, we've, we've, the middle class has been decimated. Absolutely. Well, a lot of the reasons that the middle class has been decimated is because the court has stood in the way. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of cases which don't seem so enormous taken singly, but when you pile them on top of each other, you start to understand. I mean, if you just look at the sort of campaign finance area. Um, yes. So this it's, it, this happens somewhat indirectly, but when the court says that Congress can't actually regulate campaign money um, and certainly independent expenditures, um, which in the court's alleged view, I would say alleged because I don't think they, they're not even not stupid enough to really believe it, um, but they say it, which is that if it's an independent expenditure, it can't um, be per, per se corrupting. Um, because uh, it's not given directly to the candidate and uh, and it's spent independently. And of course, that would mean, oh, candidates don't know what's going on in the world by the, you know their groups that are supporting them. Um, but anyway, but the, also the idea that the, that the only thing that Congress can actually regulate is actual quid pro quo corruption. That is, you know, uh, if people were uh, bringing you a bag of cash into the New Hampshire State House, right. that would be uh that would be prevented but the idea that you know that they you know want to be limited in not taking campaign contributions say from uh, uh interest groups that are directly affected by legislation in front of the committee you sit on um that's not corruption right that's not quid pro quo corruption unless right. you're, they're buying a vote unless they're buying your vote directly um and so what that has meant is that our campaign finance system is I mean, everybody knows this, right? But it's totally broken. The reason it's broken is the court has broken it. And the that essentially means that Congress and state legislatures are swamped with special interest money 
um, special interest money doesn't come from uh, uh, you know from small stakeholders and small business or and and you know people who are um, working minimum wage jobs or you know just kind of scraping by. That's not special interest money. The special interest money is from major corporate interests that are trying to ensure that Congress doesn't do the things that help those people I just mentioned. The people are just scraping by. Right. So in part, it's setting up a roadblock. Um, but then they have also really undermined the places where Congress has been able to legislate um, by making it harder for consumers to sue corporations, forcing them into arbitration. Um, as I mentioned, the antitrust law, by um, providing a very cramped uh, view of what can be um, considered a violation of, right. of, of antitrust, of changing bankruptcy rules um, so that you know it's very much in favor of large, rich entities and very much against small people who are uh, uh, hurt by, you know, personal circumstances like illness or um, job loss. Um, you know, so there, there's there. You just have to start parsing it out and look at every other. And let's just talk about unions. I mean, you know, the 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 this court has basically um, stolen, you know, torn, torn the art out of the public employee unions. Um, has you know doesn't protect the right to organize. Um, allows um, uh, uh, workers to be fired when they're striking, even though it's in direct contravention of the National Labor Relations Act. The replacement workers can come in and take their jobs. You know, it's it's so unions. You know, we could say, oh, the you know the union movement has really um, shrunk in the United States. That's too bad. But we have to look at what the causes are. I mean, it's not only the court's fault, but the court has been a big precipitating factor uh -huh. here. Yeah. And so all of these things go to, you know, why there's not a strong middle class anymore in, in the United States. Um, this idea that the court has been, you know, has this extreme libertarian viewpoint that blocks these kinds of efforts to um, aggregate, you know, average people's power. Mm. And it, it, they've certainly become, it appears, the handmaidens of, of the big corporate uh, interest that uh, uh, many people thought should be including FDR, thought uh, really should be tethered to the good of the people. Oh, what a quaint old idea. <laughs> <laughs> For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the two Supreme Court, just two Supreme, out of the realm of what was, I think, intended and, and uh, how much it hurts uh, Democracy. Our guest is uh, author of an article in the Washington uh, Monthly about that, and as addressed in that book, uh, is quoted in your article: "An equality of property is the very soul of a republic." While this continues, the people will inevitably possess the power and freedom. When this is lost, power departs, liberty expires, and a commonwealth will inevitably assume some other form. Yikes! End of quote. What has the role of the courts been in abating, aiding and abetting this whittling down of equality so essential for a republic to survive. And there's another quote uh, from jo Congressman John Bell of Tennessee at the time of Andrew Jackson. This is interesting. He says, equality of rank and influence, equality of rank and influence is the fundamental principle upon which our government is erected. End of quote. So it seems like the court system being like largely out of the public spotlight and Democrats, you know, saying, oh, it's the court, we can't argue with them. So I guess it's kind of 
intentionally, I suppose, greased the way for accumulation of great wealth and inequality of power, and thus hurt democracy. And what what are some examples, just to, to bring it home, of the court's decisions which benefited powerful interests at the expense of the rest of us? The common good. <laughs> Where that to could start? be a long show. <laughs> <I know. laughs> that could be a long show. Um, you know, I'll just go back to the campaign finance arena. But what about Citizens United? Um, the idea that that you know that that the the wealthy and powerful um, can engage in um, massive political spending and be completely unaccountable. They can spend as much as they want um, in advocating candidates, and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, that has a massively warping um, impact on American society, both because it, it has a direct impact on warping our elections, um, but then the people who get elected are um, are answering to those same interests. So that is a, a, a large area of the law. Um, but again, also I would you know would would suggest that areas of labor and employment, um, where um, this court Justice Alito is particularly yeah. um, snarky about um, unions um, and about um, uh, wanting to rein them in. Um, and they have done so. I mean, they have made it, um, it, it's not impossible to organize a union, but, luckily, um, but it's very difficult. It is. But luckily, I, I sense a real uh, uptick in, in union organizing, Amazon, places like that. And there's a lot more support for that, I think, happening. And the subtitle of your article, the title, of course, is the two Supreme Court. Subtitle is Making the Constitution Populist Again. Now, the Sherman Antitrust Act, which we talk about, is significant in that the federal government took on the great power of what today we'd call corporate interests. So my question is, is either the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution anti-oligarchic? And is the Constitution meant to be populist, at least in part? And what do we mean in this situation by populist? Well, so what we mean really is um, uh, that the Constitution um, was uh, drafted by people who believed that a republic was dependent on um, the participation of people with broadly equal wealth. Um, and that was not lots of wealth. It meant that it was a sort of their vision was a nation of small farmers and merchants, um, uh, mechanics, I think they called them. Mm. Um, that, um, that, you know, it, it was, it was a very idealistic view, uh, also deeply racist <laughs> and misogynistic. So let's, you know, we always have to mention that because, um, you know, this, this ideal of Jeffersonian ideal was, you know, on the, the shoulders uh, of many people who were enslaved and, um, and otherwise, um, uh, uh treated terribly, um, but you know, this is what they wrote about: um, that the republics were really dependent on having this kind of dispersal of 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 economic um, resources um, among the at least the the, the white male uh, population, because that would ensure that a democracy could function, um, that people would participate in broadly equal ways, and that would bring you the best kind of arguments and the best representation. Um, and so, you know, and this, again, if one has to remember that they are, um, they are breaking from a monarchy that was founded on um, a, a system of aristocracy, of inherited wealth and power titles. Um, and, you know, so this was what 
um, uh, they saw as the antithesis, the mm-hmm. need to um, ensure that they would never go back to that view. And so you have to think about aggregated wealth for them was the step towards some kind of inherited system of titles, of aristocracy, of of something where there's the society itself does not renew itself through every generation through really? participation, but in fact is one that is determined in advance by, um, you know, who your parents are, you know, what you've inherited. Um, uh, and so, you know, for them, that meant a constant shakeup. And that meant that, you know, you had to keep thinking about how to spread the wealth, because once it starts getting aggregated, you're going to return to that system, which leads inevitably to tyranny. Which... We have some people today who wave Trump flags and the American flag and do not understand the meaning of tyranny and how incredibly anti-democratic and anti-Republican with a small r that really is. Getting them to understand that, boy. But, you know, a, a lot of the people who were drawn to the faux populism of Trump were against the concentration and centralization of power beyond their reach. So I'm thinking maybe, maybe there's a, some way to connect with that larger uh, political spectrum? I don't know. And and, and you say that uh, we need our own positive vision of the Constitution that elevates popular rule and a broad middle class that builds a national community by opposing oligarchic control. It doesn't seem too much to ask for. It seems to me this is really <laughs> fertile ground for Democrats. But are there any that are daring to go there? And if not, why not? I think there are, in fact. And I think this is a moment where um, it's been truer than uh, in a long time. And I'll give you a few examples. Well, Elizabeth Warren is a clear one. Yes. um, Who really understands how um, uh, wealth, um, uh, uncontrolled wealth, um, can undermine a a democracy. Um, But President Biden um, has actually been very... um, um, uh, has really shown incredible leadership in this area yes. in how he's approached, particularly the areas of competition. Um, competition policy, I think, is 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 un, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the antitrust mm. issues, um, often neglected by democracy activists and the left. Um, uh. It sounds it's so sounds very technical. It sounds like for a bunch of wonks who care about you know, um, oh, I don't know, um, data and things that, you know, are, you know, like, opaque to, to most of us. Yeah, <laughs> and, like but, getting lost in the weeds. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but the, the the analogy I like to say is, let's just remember, it's called competition policy. And I think competition policy has an impact on democracy because democracy is about competition. We want free and fair competition. Yes. Um, competition policy is, is, is adjacent to dem- democratic competition policy. Uh, in that, um, again, when, you know, competition policy deals with, um, uh, you know, what, what kind of monopolies um, companies can have. Um, you know, if a company has a monopoly over, uh, say, a communications infrastructure, it can control what you see, hear, learn, the news, your reading, um, your music, so many different aspects of your life. If it's a major company that controls, say, uh, all the things that you might want to buy, um, as hmm. all the books you might want to buy, um, and start stomping on all sorts of other businesses that no longer provide those services because they can't compete. Um, you know, you start to understand how it relates to democracy. And that's, um, 
Yeah, the courts have tremendous power in that field, and they have been doing it, and uh, the uh, the power and the wealth has been trickling up rather consistently. Mm-hmm. And I but know- let me just, sorry, I, I forgot to kind of take this Go right ahead. through to the conclusion, which is that President Biden has put people in place um, in the relevant agencies who are incredibly visionary about reclaiming um, competition policy, that is antitrust, um, in favor of democratic um, uh, uh-huh. interests. And so recognizing that um, monopolies are bad for our society, that they are actually illegal under our statutes, yes. and that they have been much more aggressive at you know looking at the tech companies, um, but not just – um, we think about it as kind of tech policy because it's it's mm-hmm. it's you know it's mostly the fair fair uh, trade commission and the federal communications commission, um, but President Biden has put people there who are really breaking with um, you know sort of the given right wing interpretation of the laws that the Democrats and the left have pretty much just accepted mm. for too long. Um, uh, it really undermining the principles under uh, uh, undergirding the Sherman Act uh, and the other antitrust laws. Yeah, and if people care about issues like mass incarceration, health care, uh, social insurance programs, voting, anti-discrimination, labor policy, banking regulation, et cetera, et cetera, Congress, Congress is not the only place where this can be addressed. There has to mm-hmm. be pressure put on the le- the judicial branch. They can affect it. Very interesting stuff and some degree of hope that uh, things are starting to happen. If people are interested in following your work, Caroline, uh, is there something you can point to on the web? And what's that new book? Oh, it's not that new, but it's ah. called The Democracy, the Democracy Fix. Um, okay. And... Um, they can follow me on Twitter at, at C.R. Fredrickson. Fredrickson spelled F-R-E-D-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Well, thank you very much. And uh, it's good to, to sense some hope there that, uh, you know, the, the courts, uh, they've evaded, uh, uh, are, are looking at them for a long time, but uh, we're looking at them. We are. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you. But the corporations make the regulations And hold no one accountable when everything goes wrong Let the rich and famous get away with murder Every time a high-priced mouthpiece starts to talk His client gets to walk Tell me where is the justice, if there's any justice Where is the justice, Where is the justice? What good is law that can't punish those who break it? Politicians make their speeches all day long While judges pushing pencils mostly get it wrong It's got a loophole for the law to fall between The two good old-fashioned payback grease the wheels of the machine Isn't everybody sick to death of all this stuff? Can't we all stand up and say